So welcome, Meredith from Oklahoma City. Thank you. Hi, my name is Mary Lou, and if you don't think I don't know about love, <laughs> then you got something else coming. Uh, thank you, Joan. I'm, I'm glad you were the one that got to introduce me, because, yeah, I remember uh, a lot of things about our paths crossing. Um, I do think it seems humorous that Jean asked me to speak on love, just because uh, my life's experience with multiple marriages qualifies me, certainly, and... When I look back at my personal inventory and uh, I look at all the crazy choices that I made, and they were crazy choices. Um, actually, I'm surprised that anybody wants me to speak because I don't think I have anything important to say <laughs> or worthy to share. Um, my mother's always said that uh, everything is easy for me, and I guess with the, uh, the original love of parents... Um, she always trusted me to take care of everything. When my brother came home from the hospital, you know, I, she was, we were, I was the fourth of six children, and I guess the newness had worn off by then. I wasn't really the favorite. I was, I was a good kid because I always wanted to be in good graces. But um, she was resting one day, and she, she, told, she reminded me this story again just last week, like I'd never heard it before, that... One morning, she woke up, and I, had, I was five years old. I had a brand-new baby brother, and I had fixed him a bottle. And she walked in, and I said, well, he was hungry. And she always says it. He was hungry like I was a little kid and, you know, didn't know what was going on. But that's who I am. Uh, I've always been a caretaker. I've always been a codependent. I've always <laughs> just wanted to make sure everybody is comfortable mostly at the uh, sacrifice of myself. It's like, well, it's okay. if you're As long as you're comfortable and you're happy, I'm happy. Um, there was never any alcohol in my home, but uh, in my experience with Al-Anon and listening to the, the, especially the ACOA topics, we were Baptists, so we didn't drink, but that doesn't mean a lot of that rage and a lot of that passive-aggressive behavior didn't exist in my life. Uh, we always were told to be quiet and be, you know, not not rock the boat because my dad was, he was worker and he was, uh, he always had to take a nap. I don't know what he was doing while he was taking a nap, but he was always taking a nap. But anyway... Uh, for whatever reasons, all those things happened. My dad's been tw dead for 25 years now, and my mother is still angry at him. And I think because I look most like him, I'm uh, her caretaker at this time because she's had several strokes and is in a retirement home. But I think when I walk in, you know, it triggers. She's got some dementia, but it triggers something like. Oh, yeah, you look like Daddy. Let me tell you how bad he was, you know, and how mean he was and how strict he was. Uh, fortunately, through the grace of the program, I have learned that uh, he did the best he could. You know, he had a, only had a fifth-grade education. There were six kids over 19 years, and he, you know, he always worked at moderate jobs. He never made a fortune or never did anything glamorous that I could remember. At any rate, I've, I've been able to come to the reconciliation through work in the program that he did the best he could with the upbringing he had and the background he had. Um, 
I couldn't wait until I was 18 and out of the house, though. I was, I was so anxious to be out and on my own. Um, I had a girlfriend in high school, and we just were talking one day, and we just decided we'd move to Oklahoma City, which at that time I was living in Norman, and I wrote my parents a note. I mean, can you imagine? Just say, well, we've, we've decided we're going to move to Oklahoma City, and we're going to rent an apartment, and we'll see you later. And, you know, to this day, I look back at that and say, what was I thinking? How, how could you do that to your parents? Because I'm a more loving person now than I was then. Or maybe I, you know, I just didn't know. I didn't have the, the background to know that was not the right choice. Um, I was free from the bondage of my parents that day. And I never really dated much in high school. But uh, I had some friends who introduced me to some People, you know, my first husband was probably the first person I really seriously dated, and he was a veteran from Vietnam, and um, he, we slept together, and because I was Baptist and that's the way I was raised, you had to get married, and I always tell everybody I'm not a slut. You just have to marry your relationships. <laughs> so we got married. And I can remember him, you know, he, if it was thundering or lightning, he would wake up and think he was back in Vietnam. And because I'm a caretaker and a codependent, it's like, well, I can fix this for you. I can take care of this. Let me comfort you. You know, you don't have to be afraid. I can take care of it. Um, because of who I am, uh, he started, this was way before, way before Jones thought I knew about Al-Anon, um, he got sort of in a downward spiral and started using more and more drugs and smoking more and more marijuana, and that was our social life, was finding somebody that, you know, had some marijuana, and we would go to their house, and I can remember thinking, why am I here? And so I wasn't for very much longer. I just laughed, and we got a divorce, and and he spiraled down, and the last I heard, he was living in seclusion on a farm in the country. I'm sure he's raising his marijuana plants and, um, well, that's enough about number one. Um, my second husband, I met him, and I was working at the, I was always a good employee. I was always, you know, I always did the right thing. I always tried to make sure I was, uh, on time, and, you know, I did my work. I, uh, followed the rules of whatever I was supposed to be doing, and there was always somebody that popped in that was just charming and witty and brilliant and delightful and very intriguing. And um, being who I am, I fell in love with him and married him, slept with him and married him. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you today that I can still pick out alcoholics across the room. There are a bunch of them sitting right back there. One of them is my, one of them is my significant other. But... Uh, you know, I'm just drawn to them. If they're fun, if they're smart, if they're witty, I just am so attracted. And my husband teases me today that, you know, well, if you don't like him, he probably doesn't belong in the program. Um, and if I do, yeah, it's the kiss of death. That's the stamp. Now, I, I kept repeating that that uh, program <laughs> of, of finding somebody to love and divorcing them, and um, finally I met somebody really wonderful who was so romantic. As a matter of fact, he showed up one day. Um, at that time, I was a detail rep for an orthopedic surgery company, 
And one day I came home and he showed up. He had a, a complete set of new suitcases and a ticket to Niagara Falls. How can you not love somebody like that? And uh, we enjoyed drinking together a lot. Um, we had uh, lots of exotic and scintillating vacations to wonderful places. Um, I can tell you that uh, that we had one particular trip that we went to an orange bowl with his children, and um, he had a little bit of a problem with a seizure and scared everybody. That his stepchildren were were very young then; they were like eight and ten and twelve, or eight and ten and ten and twelve and fourteen, or something like that. Anyway. Um, that really kind of set me on the road. That's when I really got the first exposure to Al-Anon because at that time he decided, well, maybe I do need to go to treatment and try to find some serenity and some sobriety. And I had people calling me and telling me that I could go to this meeting and go to that meeting and there's a better way. And I really never bought into it. I kind of went to some meetings. As a matter of fact, the first meeting I went to, I remember just sitting in the meeting and just crying and crying and crying. Uh, and I couldn't get a word out. Um, I, and people came up after the meeting and hugged me and, and welcomed me in. But I never really bought into the program. And uh, we rocked along. He he struggled with staying sober. Uh, we established a relationship with his children, and his children really became attached to me, except he had an ex-wife that really wasn't attached to the fact that I was part of their life. Um, we married uh, shortly after his first visit to the treatment. So, you know, they told you when you go to treatment to not do anything for a year. Well, we we moved two months after. We filed bankruptcy and moved two months after he got out of treatment. And then right after that, we did get married. Um, shortly after that, in October, we had one of the sons that came and lived with us. And... Uh, that was always a kind of a burr in the side of the stepmother. But anyway, she, he came and lived with us. And when we moved, we moved into a smaller condo. And so my, my stepson was commuting back and forth from Oklahoma City to Norman to finish his last year of high school. And unfortunately, one night that same year in October, uh, he was involved in a really horrible, horrible car crash and was in a coma for quite some time. Um, we uh, didn't think he was going to live, quite frankly. And um, it was a life-changing experience for both of us. Um, it kind of drew us all closer together, but my husband wasn't quite ready to be sober yet, so the honesty wasn't quite there. At any rate, we rocked along for a while. I continued to take my stepson to high school and he graduated, and we went to he went to several uh, rehab programs, and I developed quite a love for him. Um, it's been a it's been a tough road because of the three stepchildren. He's the only one who's not sober today. So, and I've got the most time probably invested in him than I do in the others. At any rate, um, ultimately, my husband had relapsed along the way and in 1992 we'd been married four years and um, 
he got contacted by somebody at the hospital who said, you know, you, you smell like you've been drinking. Well, he was determined he was not going to smell like he was drinking. So he was drinking some Listerine, and uh, he got invited back to treatment, and that's when Gary and, and my husband, Joan's husband and my husband, crossed paths. And at that time, there was always a uh, physician recovery spouse group that met in Oklahoma City, but it was on a Monday night, and who would want to go on a Monday night? You know, get out of your house and drive to Oklahoma City. Oh, my gosh. So I decided that, well, you know, maybe I ought to go. Somebody, I, I think it was probably Joan that called me and invited me and said, you know, this meeting's still there, and it might be good for you. So um, I started going to that meeting, and my husband graduated from <laughs> treatment, and he started going too. Now, I, I think I told you we had filed bankruptcy and um, we didn't have much money. <laughs> and that was kind of like a date night for us. So we um, would go to that meeting, and we started acting our way into better, better behavior. Um, we had a, a, I think we had a spiritual awakening then when we decided that we were both going to commit to the program and I think it made a difference in my life. I know it made a difference in my life. There's no thinking about it. Uh, little by little, we got to where we really didn't socialize with anybody that wasn't in the program. It's just it's funny how your circle changes. It's like the people that aren't in the program really aren't that interesting. You know, as interesting and assimilating and as intelligent and brilliant as I thought they they were, those that are in the program that have found the, the love of God and the love of fellowship, they're the ones that I enjoy spending my time with today. Um, I have learned that uh, my God loves me today more than he did before I, I came to this realization that all those things that I did, all those relationships that I was involved with got me to where I am today. They, my God loves me enough to, to put, like I said, those two other stepchildren who have been in the program, one of them, the daughter, the youngest one, came to live with us after we both got serious about coming to the program. And that's a whole lot of love for somebody to come to you and say, I want to come live with you, knowing that she's going to get grief from her mother. And um, she stayed with us for a while, and she says, you know, you taught me how to live the program. And little did we know that she was drinking and carousing herself. And she called one day and talked to my husband and said, I've been to my first meeting. And we were both so surprised and so taken aback. And uh, she was living with an abusive, in an abusive relationship at that time. And she didn't know where to go, what to do, how to end up. She was living in Houston at the time. We were still in Oklahoma. And I got the opportunity to go down and help her extract herself from that abusive relationship and to set her up in an apartment and get her, you know, some furniture. She didn't even have furniture or anything because she's been living with this guy. Um, through God's love, I've learned that even though I never was married to anybody long enough, that I now have three children, two of them who love me very dear. Actually, all three of them love me very dearly. I'm sure if, <laughs> if we keep working on that third one, 
he'll come into the program too. Um, and I was involved in both of the recovery programs. This, the son, the second son that uh, that came into the program has the greatest sobriety date. His date is three, four, five. So I, I hope he never has to lose that sobriety date. But I got to be involved in that. I got to be get to be involved in that uh, intervention. How that sounds so painful, but it was it was definitely a blessing. Looking back on it. Uh, and probably the most important loving relationship I have is that I have the, the relationship with my three grandchildren who call me Gaga. There's a four-year-old and a soon-to-be three-year-old and a soon-to-be two-year-old, and I probably never would have had them had it not been for the program. Um, I don't, I've, her life would have taken a different route, and so would mine, had we not been involved in Al-Anon and AA. Um, I have learned through um, a situation as frightening as cancer that once again Joan and, and her husband were involved with. You know, he was the one that when David was diagnosed with cancer, with throat cancer, that he happened to be a radiation oncologist. And knowing that he was in the program and that Joan was in the program and being able to go in and talk to them and say, what should we do? And he said, well, if it were me... I would have the surgery, and that's been six years, and I know that God will take me through those frightening lessons, as, you know, looking at cancer in the face, looking at, uh, at every adversity that can possibly raise its head and look at you, that God will take me through that, and it's his love and the love of, of you all and the love of the people in my local program that have taught me to love with all of my heart because that's the way God wants me to live every day. Um, and I'd like to share with you, I have a friend who has a recovery center in Oklahoma City, and he has a business card with his name and address on it, but it also has the prayer of St. Francis of uh, de Sales, and it says, do not look forward, or God does not want me to look forward to what happen, might happen next, because he's the same everlasting God who takes care of me today, and he'll take care of me tomorrow. And either he will shield me from suffering, or he will give me strength to bear anything. And to be at peace, put aside all anxious thoughts and imaginations. And that's the God who I live with today. Thank you very much. Nani, I've only really met by telephone and email, so she will be... Please, people, could we have silence? <laughs> I'm having trouble getting this out, and I, and I don't know Nani, so is she in here? Okay, perfect. I'm sorry. I haven't met her other than by phone and email, so she will need to introduce herself <laughs> to us, and her topic is on Step 4, Maturity. Thank you. Hi, I hate to do a correction is the first thing that I do when I get up here, but my name's pronounced Noni. <laughs> I always say my mother pronounced, misspelled it because it is phonetically really like Bonnie, but it's, we've always called me Noni. Um, my real name is Lane. It has nothing to do with my real name. Um, 
There's an old, the family legend is that I, um, my take on this, my mother didn't believe in childproofing her house. And she and my grandfather were major collectors. So I was always told, no, no, when I went to touch things. And so the legend is that I used to stand in front of these nice-looking little figurines and say, no, no, noni, no, no, noni. And I guess my grandmother picked it up. And I've been called that for as long as I know. And when I got to college, I discovered that that's an Irish nickname for Nora. My real name isn't Nora, so I guess my grandmother picked it up because she was as Irish as Patty's pig. And... Um, that's my story as to what I am. And some of that has to do with a lot of different things. When Jean called and asked me to talk about to talk at the, at the meeting, I said, sure. And then I said, what's the topic? And she said, maturity. And I said, maturity. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, God. And I said, where did you get this topic? <laughs> and she said... Well, it's in the Blueprint for Progress. And I thought, I don't remember that, but that's been a long time since I've looked at that. So I went and looked for my Blueprint for Progress and couldn't find it, so I had to buy another one. Um, And one of my great character defaults is procrastination, so I didn't buy it until the other day when I got here. Um, (laughs) But I have also learned that the worst thing I can do is over-prepare. And so what I did was, okay... I've been in this program a long time, and I'm just going to sit down and write down my thoughts about maturity. And then when I get this book, I'll see what it compares to. Well, I was happy, I'm happy to report I'm pretty much on target here. But of course, as you all know, there's at least three talks that you give the one you prepare, the one you give, and the one that you think you should have given. Well, I've done that about 15 times. <laughs> so what I finally did last night was just make a bunch of little notes. And, um, I'll talk about this. I thought about this this word, and since I'm a real word freak, I realize this is a pretty word loaded word. There's a lot of subtleties and a lot of shadings and a lot of different variations on the word maturity. And the more you think about it, the worse it gets. So I wasn't sure how to define maturity. And there's a lot, there's a great definition in The Courage to Change on page 62, and it's long, so I'm not going to read it because you can find it. The other thing I did do was I did look in the Al-Anon literature. There's not a lot of words for maturity in the indexes in our books, which didn't help me either. Um, So I thought, okay, it's really up to me to talk about and to do what I'm supposed to do, talk about what what my story was like. So what I did was I thought, okay, I'll tell him another story. And that'll get me started because it came back to me. I came home one day when I was about in the first or second grade. I got off the bus, and the garage door was open. And my mother always had the garage door closed. And it was full of hay, a lot of hay bales. We lived out in the country, not really in the country, but in a new suburb that was about five, ten miles outside of Cincinnati. Well, I went rushing into my mother and grabbed her around the knees and said, Oh, thank you, thank you. I'm so excited. When's it coming? And she looked at me and she said, 
When's what coming? I said, well, all that hay, when's the pony going to be here? And she, she, she told me later that that was the hardest thing I had to do was to tell you that there wasn't any pony coming. The seed for the grass was coming. <laughs> and what I learned from that, there's, there's a big difference between perception and reality. Okay, there was hay there, but what I perceived that to be had no bearing on what was coming, except that maybe in the future the pony could have eaten the grass, but that was about as far as I could get to. Um, the other way I thought I'd approach this is with the great who, when, where, what, and how. And so the where is basically where I grew up, in my family. There was alcoholism in my family, and it was an African elephant. It wasn't an Indian elephant. It was a huge thing that we did not acknowledge. My grandfather was probably an alcoholic, and I've diagnosed him as such only after all the years in Al-Anon and alcoholism and all the CMEs that I've attended here, mainly because of the guilt and the secrets and the manipulation in my mother's family. He died when I was eight. He died on my eighth birthday. And I was very close to him as a kid. But I only had him for eight years, so I didn't really know him all that well. I found out that he and my grandmother had separated at one point and that he had stopped drinking. Well, I know he drank a lot, uh, or at least bought a lot of liquor, because they had a wonderful house that had been built by a builder, so there was no expense spared on this house. And one of the things that had been built in the cellar was a big bar in a wine cellar that was bigger than most people's kitchens. <laughs> and um, nobody talked about that. Nobody talked about anything in my family. We never talked about any problems. You just were supposed to grin and bear it and deal with it. But nobody ever taught you how to deal with it either. So it was very, um, we had a lot of hidden feelings. And we certainly never talked about anything that my mother referred to as earthy. So I never learned about menstruation, sex. Um, my thing was, uh, we just didn't talk about that. The only advice I ever got from boys about boys was from my father on the way to dancing school once, and he said, don't let the boys know you're too smart. <laughs> and I said, what? He said, boys don't like real smart girls, so don't, look too, don't be too smart. And he said, just remember, it's not what you are, it's what you appear to be. And that was the beginning of the problems with me and my family. <laughs> I looked at my father and I said, I don't really think I know how to do that. And he said, well, just be nice and, and do what your mother tells you to do. My mother never told me anything, so I didn't know what to do. So I t listened to everybody else, and I just kind of did whatever I wanted to do. I liked being smart, and I loved to learn, and I still love to learn. And so I figured, okay, if some guy doesn't like me because I'm intelligent, forget him. And as a result, I probably I was not real popular in high school. But that's okay. The other one is who, and that has to do with that appearance business. Um, and I really didn't know who I was because my mother wanted me to be one thing. 
and I wanted to be something else, but I didn't know what it was. She wanted a little girl who was clean and dressed in frilly dresses and was quiet. That was not me. Um, I liked animals of all sizes, shapes, and forms. There were no kids in my neighborhood, so I ended up playing with the field mice and my imaginary friend on the telephone. Um, I had two sisters, but they were two and five years younger than I was, so I didn't really have any great playmates, so it was all up here. And I read a lot wherever I could find it, um, because we didn't really have a lot of books in our house. Uh, I remember reading the funnies every Sunday afternoon when the paper came, but that was all that I really had. The first book I ever really found and loved was at a friend of my mother's. It was some set, and there was a book of animal stories, and it was excerpts from all the great animal stories, like my friend Flicka and Black Velvet and all those things. So I had to go find myself, and one good thing that my mother did was she wrote me a letter to the librarian and said she can read anything she wants and take it out. And I read all kinds of weird things when I was a kid because I found some things, and if I didn't understand what they were... And I remember I got this one book that was really a sexy Japanese book. I didn't have a clue what they were talking about, number one, but I thought, I don't think I'm ready for this book, and I put it down um, and went on to something else. <laughs> I read... Um, the other thing I loved was historical novels, especially about the Revolutionary and the Civil War. But I read it for the history. I didn't read it for... And there were all these romance in them, and I skipped over all that mushy stuff. Um, okay, fourth was when. And one of the things that I thought about when I was doing this is time doesn't equal maturity. You can be 95 years old and still not be a mature person. I had a 14-year-old, well, actually, I think she was 12 at the time, babysitter who was more mature at 12 than I think I was at 40. This woman, this girl was incredible. And even her mother said that. She said, oh, yeah, Mary Pat's a 40-year-old in a 12-year-old body. I love this kid. I paid her a fortune. We had four kids in four and a half years, five years. So um, I had to pay babysitters a lot when they were young, but mainly just for the one kid. My second child was a real handful. And the rest of them were fine. Of course, the, the younger two were, the, were babies. But Mary came home one night. Mary Pat had cleaned the floor. She had washed the kitchen floor. And I said, why did you wash the kitchen floor? She said, well, it was kind of dirty. And I just thought, well, why not? I'll do it for her. Well, let me tell you, she got a big tip that night. <laughs> um, and I have to tell you, because part of maturity is honesty and all those other things that we've talked about these last two days. And I've been in this program since 1973. I was a youngin' when I came in. And there were people when Jim and I came into the program. We were 26 and 27. They didn't think we were old enough. And we didn't have enough bad experience to be in the program. And some of them told us that. Oh, you haven't been around long enough to need this program. Well, let me tell you, I needed this program. I didn't know what was wrong in our family. Because I didn't have a nice, happy little drunk... I had a really nasty Jekyll Hyde drunk who tried to kill me, tried to kill himself, and was finally taken off to General Hospital psych ward, courtesy of the Cincinnati police and about four of their friends after a really nasty showdown with a gun. And that's probably one of the worst lives, year, nights of my life. And really, there hadn't been anything else to equal that since. 
And I firmly believe that was what I was meant to do to be able to survive the rest of my life because I really was able to, didn't know how to handle it, but I had a lot of, my father showed up and uh, they took him off to general and eventually they got him into a psych ward and he was in restraints for three days and I wasn't allowed to see him. And the psychiatrist avoided me who ran. It was just a regular mental hospital. He avoided me all the time. And when I finally courted him one day in the hall, I said, what is wrong? What, it, what is the problem here? This is obviously something that's really drastic. And because I had a little bit of knowledge about medicine, because I was always fascinated, and that's what I wanted to be, was a physician. I had come to the conclusion that he had a brain tumor. And that was the only thing that I had done research on it. And uh, got all, had all the symptoms. And, you know, sudden outbursts, craziness, you know, uh, the whole nine yards. Everything he'd had done was indicative of a brain tumor to me. I don't go around diagnosing anything anymore. But I got a big scare because I got this hold of the psychiatrist, and I said, what's the matter with him? And he said, well, we don't know yet. And I said, well, why not? He said, well, we're still doing tests, and that test haven't come back yet. And I said, well, what kind of test are you doing? He said, well, we're doing, we've got the blood test, but they aren't showing anything. And he said, um, there's something funny on the x-ray. Well, right away, being a good, sick person, I uh, immediately said, oh, my God, I'm right. He has, does have a brain tumor. And so we had to wait, and then I had to go chase this doctor down. These were very long two weeks. Eventually they did uh, an EEG, and they said, no, there's nothing wrong with his brain. Jim had had a very bad accident in college, and I figured that's where I got this brain tumor theory, was that this was a, a latent re- re- recurrence of something that had happened when he was in the hospital after this motorcycle accident. So... Um, that was my introduction to AA and Al-Anon because I had to then make, he was going to be in this hospital for two weeks. So I had to call the insurance agent and tell him that my husband was in the hospital and we needed to do something about the insurance and maybe disability. And I hemmed and hawed for five minutes. And finally Jack said, Noni, just tell me where he is. And I said, well, he's in the hospital. He said, yeah, well, what hospital? I need to know what hospital he's in. And I said, all right, he's at Emerson North. And he said, why is he in Emerson North? And I said, well, and then I told him the whole story. I finally thought, okay, i got to tell this guy. And he said, well, he said, Noni, you know, I'm going to tell you something. And he proceeded to tell me his story. And it was a carbon copy of Jim's. He, too, had held a wife to his gun's head. He, too, had been really nasty. You know, he hadn't ended up in a, in a psych ward. But he said, I want you to, he said, and I'm in AA, and there's a program, and, there, and I'll come and talk to Jim. And he said, you aren't going to believe this. He said, I'm giving a lead at Emerson North next Tuesday night. And I still get chills when I say that. <laughs> And he said, in the meantime, I want you to talk to my wife. So I talked to Wanda, because I thought she was going to tell me what she did to get him sober. And she said, um, 
there's a program for you, too, because we are affected by this. I agreed with that so far. And then she said, and you have to learn that this really isn't your problem, and we're going to do something to help you cope with your life. And I said, cope with my life. My life is kind of, is fine. You know, it's his life that's all messed up. I'm the one that's holding this whole little shebang together. Well, she insisted on taking me on Thursday night, and so, of course, she did. Well, Jim didn't go that night to the Tuesday meeting, but he did find out about AA anyway. And um, when I first went into Al-Anon, there were all these happy people. And I looked around, and I thought, okay, you know, they must, something must be going on here. Well, after that first meeting, I came to the conclusion that they didn't have anything in common with me. They were all either divorced, their husbands had died, or they were in AA. There wasn't anybody in there that was in my situation. So, of course, they're happy. <laughs> so I went home with, with Wanda, and I said, I don't need to go back there. I said, those people are, are, are sick. They're all happy. They're all sitting around joking about these life and death situations. And, you know, they need some help. And I said, I don't want to be there because I don't know what to do for them. And she said, no, you got to keep coming back. <laughs> so she showed up every Thursday, like I said, and she brought me back. And, um, and then I started the, yeah, but you don't understand, my husband's different. Well, he was the only doctor of any sort that we knew. We didn't know of any other ones. Nobody else knew of any ones at that point. So... And I, so that was my big thing. They said, well, we're different because my husband's a doctor and you don't understand. And they said, yes, we do understand. What you don't understand is that you're really not that different. Your circumstances are different as far as what he does. But your head and his head and your feelings and your emotions are all the same. And just keep coming back and you'll understand this. Well, eventually I got that message. And I started laughing and telling horrible stories just like I am now. <laughs> and... Um, you know, and I think it's laughter to me is one of the greatest, greatest uh, remedies because if you can't laugh, you are going to cry, and if it gets really bad, you're going to go jump off a bridge. And um, I had a very bad ending to a relationship in college, and um, I decided I one night when I was crying myself to sleep again, no bastard would ever going to do that to me again. And I wasn't ever going to think about killing myself over something like that. And I never have. Um, I've thought about it, and I think, no, it's not worth it. Then the other thing is I can't think of a good way to die. Um, you know, <laughs> it, there's no easy way to do it. And, you know, some of the ones that you think are easy, they may not work. <laughs> so let's not even go there. When I was a kid, I realized... I was always good, and everybody, the nuns, thought I was wonderful. And everybody thought I was just fabulous because I didn't cause any trouble. I always did what I was told. And they all thought it was because I was such a good little kid. What they didn't understand is I discovered it was easier to just do what they said because they left me alone. And I could do what I wanted to do pretty much because they'd leave me alone. And uh, I'd go off and sneak off to libraries and do my own thing. And um, my sister was the one that got into all the trouble made it even easier for me because I was being good, so they never paid any attention to me. And um, I did have this little independent streak in me all along, and I did have a sense of proprietary, 
proprietary. And because one day this nun came up to me and she took me into her office and she said, I want to know what your sister did last weekend. This was when I was in high school. Now, my sister right after me and I are not very close. Never have been, probably never will be. We get along, but that's about as far as it. We don't have that super sister bond. I have that with my third sister. And I remember I thought, and I looked at this nun and I said, it's none of your business what my sister did last weekend. Well, this was the principal, and she said, why, I need to know. And I said, no, you don't. Your concern with my sister is when she's here, not when she's at home. That's my mother's concern. Well, she realized after a few minutes she wasn't going to get anything out of me. And I went home and I told my mother. (laughs) And she, uh, then I, I don't know what she ever did about it, but I was never asked by any of the nuns what any of my sisters had done on the weekends again. They didn't ask me about what I did either, but um, that's okay. (laughs) The other thing I thought about, okay, the the how is, um, you know, we've done who, what, where, and how. How do we get to this business of maturity? Well, part of it is time. Time is not a cause. Um, But it has to do a lot with what we do and how we do it. To me, this is a program of this well my disease is a, is a disease of my relationships and also of reaction i'm not in a program of 12 steps because i did anything i'm here because somebody else drank too much essentially that's why i'm here i'm staying here because this is where i've learned how to live and how have i done that through the 12 steps basically and the 12 traditions And it took me a long time to do the fourth step because when I came in in 1973, people didn't do the fourth step in Al-Anon, in Cincinnati at any rate. And when I came to the first IDEA in 75 and I went to an Al-Anon meeting, I was a little disappointed in that too because I still was in this, well, my husband's a doctor and I need to know how to live with an alcoholic doctor. And they didn't talk about that. They talked about how to do the 12 steps. Um... And I finally realized that maybe there is something to this 12-step program and their four-step, but I didn't know how to do it because we, nobody at home ever did it. We would have meetings on it, but nobody ever gave any things about it. It just wasn't done. And it wasn't until a few years later that people started, and Al-Anon got a lot bigger, and um, people started joining different service groups that people come back and said, we needed to be doing four steps here. And that's when some of our first step meetings started. And so I started doing the steps, and I got the blueprint for progress, which I have to admit I didn't like. But again, a lot of that was just because I had a lot going on. My husband took four treatments before he got sober, and the last was in Hazelden. And um, during that time, I I guess I just wasn't ready. Um, I had too many other things to deal with. I had two little kids and a husband who's career and everything was going down the drain and um, I had to go through a lot of things on my well not on my own but with the help of my friends and I did a lot of complaining and talking to my sponsors and stuff and I had a sponsor that was finally got to the point where she would she said you got five minutes and then we're going to talk about what you're going to do about it so you can get it all off your chest but then that's it and um, so I did and I started to look at things Um, And there were some things I couldn't look at for a long time because they were just too painful and I didn't understand. 
anything. But I finally got through it, and, and some of the big ones were the ones that we've touched on, my attitude, um, my responsibilities, my self-esteem. My self-esteem was in, in the pits. My mother never gave me any self-esteem. I really had a hard time with that because nothing I ever did was right. Um, as I said, I think I disappointed her because I wasn't this social, happy little, you know, fashion plate of a kid. Um, she was an interior designer, and she was one of the best interior designers that were ever put on this earth. I had absolutely no interest in interior design. I was more interested in the color of the cat's coat um, rather than getting a mink. Um, and I had to look, and as the years have gone by, I go in different things and I go back. And I've learned to use this step in a way to really see what I, where I am and what I'm doing and to help me make decisions. Um, I've also found out that um, this is an ongoing process. I'm never finished. It's kind of like polishing furniture. It can always look pretty good, but you need to keep doing it over and over again. And you have to keep doing the steps. The fourth step really gives you a good. The fourth and fifth step get you going. You get all that garbage out, a lot of the garbage. And then you can go on and do different one, the different ones we need to. And I also looked at maturity in the physical, spiritual, and emotional side of this program and my disease. Physically, I grew right away. I was as tall as I am now when I was 10. Nobody ever thought I was 10 years old because I was so tall. That caused some problems. Part of it, I was real happy to think they, everybody thought I was older. But um, there were times when it, it would cause some problems. Physical for me, too, now means not so much as growth, because I don't need to grow anymore physically. Um, but I need to maintain it, and I need to take care of myself physically. I, For a long time, that was one of This is really bizarre and really sick. One of the ways I would get back at Jim is not to brush my teeth. He's a dentist. He's my dentist. <laughs> He's been my dentist since he was in dental school. And I, everybody said, why do you go? Don't you feel funny going to your husband? And I said, no, I know what kind of a dentist he is. I know his grades. <laughs> and um, he was. He's an excellent dentist. He's a, he's a perfectionist, and he will only do it right the first time as much as he can. So, and this has become a warning signal to me, is if I somehow don't intentionally brush my teeth, I know something's wrong. And it's usually because I'm blaming him for something in my in deep down, but it's really my fault. It's my problem that I have to deal with. And so I had to learn to do that. Um, I also had to learn to, to exercise and to take care of myself in other ways, make sure I get enough sleep. I'm, I can't live on six hours of sleep, not very long. Uh, I have to have seven to eight hours of sleep. And that's kind of hard to do in this world because everybody expects you to be doing something forever. Emotionally, I was very impulsive. Um, I tend to jump in and fix it later instead of thinking about it before I go into it. You know, um, My first boss out of, co out of uh, school was, was like that. And she said, yeah, we kind of we do the make sure the lifeboat and the lifeguard are there because we're going to jump in the swimming pool regardless of what we're, before we know what we're going to do. And... Um, so I had to learn to, to think about what it was that I was reacting to and how I felt. Because, like I said, we never talked about feelings in my house. And I had to learn to, to understand what those feelings were. 
And I heard a long time ago in a talk by Father Martin, and he said, don't ever be ashamed of your feelings. Feelings are part of the human nature. What you have to learn is to not let them control you. And that made such a difference to me because I was on an emotional roller coaster for a long time. And um, I learned to kind of keep that wave a little bit flatter. There are still times when I had these spikes, but um, I now know that I recognize what's going on and I do something about it. And if I've hurt somebody or I've said something or I do something really immature, like snap at somebody or go insult someplace because they didn't do what I wanted them to do, I go back and I apologize. And I learned that here. Um, I learned to clear the air right away. If I make a mistake, I don't have any problem saying I've made a mistake. I don't want you... I don't care what you think about it anymore. I just need to make sure that I know that I made a mistake. And that's okay, too. I learn more from my mistakes, probably, than I do from what I do right. Because if I don't do it wrong, there's a lot of things I've learned, especially in my job, by doing things wrong on a computer and then having to go figure out how to fix it. So I know a lot more about computers than I really want to. Um, And I'm not really a geek. But I have to learn how to do them because nobody else is going to do it. My spiritual side is probably one of the hardest things. I've always believed in a higher power. And as I said, I've always had a little bit of an independent streak based on me. When I grew up, I was a Roman Catholic. I still am a Roman Catholic, just not a real good practicing one. And I got taught that if, you know, Roman Catholics would go to heaven and everybody else was going to hell because they weren't Roman Catholics. Well, my best friend when I was growing up, was a Presbyterian. And I loved him. Not in a, we, we were just soulmates. And uh, we would have great conversations about religion and all, anything under the sun, big philosophical discussions. And I finally decided, I, and they kept telling me how loving this God was, and I kept thinking, well, I can't love him too much because if he's going to send this guy to hell, then... There's something wrong with the, your interpretation. So I just kind of started, that was when I started taking what I liked and leaving the rest. And I got to, to, to working on it. I met a priest when I was at, we had a retreat um, at, in high school. And he was a wonderful, he was an absolutely fantastic priest. He's the first person that ever told me that heaven was, well, he was a duck hunter. He was from Wisconsin, I think. And he told me that his idea of heaven was that he was going to be able to go duck hunting every day. And he said, now the one thing I haven't figured out is how many I'm going to be able to catch. (laughs) He said, we're not going to be sitting in heaven on pink clouds bowing to God. He said, that much I'm convinced of. And I went to him as a spiritual advisor for a long time when I was in college. And then he was transferred out, and I've never been able to find him again. Um, and I miss them. And I had to learn meditation here and spirituality here. I knew religion. And now my, the- my feeling and my belief is that spirituality is what it's all about. It's my connection to the higher power and to the rest of the world through what he has created and through people that I meet and come in contact with. And I need to build on that and to build a personal relationship so I know whoever it is, whatever I call God or Jesus Christ or whatever, that I know that and I firmly believe that he takes care of me and he loves me. And he has always loved me and he always will. And it's that that 
it's kind of a trite poem about the footsteps where, you, you know, he said, you know, I'm so glad. Why did you leave? And he said, no, I didn't leave. You, I was carrying you. And you just didn't know that I was doing it. I, however that thing went, I don't remember. I don't memorize things. Um, but I always loved that because I thought, yeah, I don't feel it. But he was there. And because I fell back into it. And so one of the things, the other thing that I've, I've my final thing um, is that Maturity gives us a pers- is perspective. It's being able to look at things in my life and other people and see the good in them and the bad. I've had a career of 15 years in a medical library, which I thought I was going to be in seventh heaven, and it turned out to be, in a lot of ways, a living hell because they would never let me do what I was really good at. And every time I did it, Something So I'd go finding something else that I wanted to do, and they would pull me back and give my job to somebody else. And this has been going on for a long time. And finally, I'm going to turn 60 in December so I can retire and say goodbye. Um, I've held on, and everybody always said to me, you know, I had a lot of depression as a result of this. And I went to, to, I went to two psychiatrists and a psychologist, and they all said the same thing. Your depression is not clinical, it's situational, and as soon as you get out of that place, you're going to be a lot better. But we can never find anything for me to do, because um, I belong to a club called For Better or For Worse, and now the Medical Insurance. <laughs> and I felt, being a firstborn, I'm very much responsible and, very, and feel that you know this was my job, because Jim has had a lot of problems as a result of this accident, and he's almost uninsurable. Well, you can insure him, but it would, we would look, we'd be stumps by the time we finished giving him every arm and leg they would need to pay for it. Probably not, but that's an exaggeration. But I felt it was good. I got the insurance, and that's what, I, what we needed. Um, as it turned out, I was worried about him. Turns out I'm the one that's had all the operations in the family. Since, I have osteoarthritis, and I've just finished a hip replacement in February. Best thing that ever happened to me. Um, but I also have it in my left hip, so we're, it's just a question of time. That's why I've really gotten back into a, an exercise program, because finally I can do it again. I mean, not for years here, I couldn't walk very well. I could do it. But everybody, I got so tired of people saying, why are you limping? Uh, that I finally went and found out why I was limping, and... We finally got it. Well, I thought it was my foot because I have arthritis in my left toe, too. So I've, between the left toe and the hip, I haven't walked right forever. And now it's so nice to not have this bobbly look. And um, I think there was something chronic, but we won't go into that. But the big thing is I can now look back. And I can look at, I can look at the insanity that I did. I kept trying different things and expecting different results, and even knowing that it wouldn't happen. And now the time is right. I felt, I kept saying to God, why do you keep slamming windows on my fingers? And now the door is opened. And um, I made the decision, and it's made all the difference in the world. And um, God came along with some icing for that cake. They're doing a buyout at UC. So they're going to buy me out as well. (laughs) They don't know that I'm retiring yet, but um, I've done all the work with the state, and we're going to be able to get an extra year of service credit and some money. So I'm real happy about that. But I go back and I look and I see the things that happened. In addition to the bad, I can see a lot of good things that happened. Um, I got to travel to a lot of places that I probably never would have gone to if I hadn't been forced to to do things and to give talks and to do service in my profession. 
I got to meet an incredible number of wonderful people in my profession. I got to learn an awful lot. Um, and like I said, I've always been a, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm getting tired of that thing because a lot of people aren't like that. But it doesn't matter. I'm interested in everything. And that's one of the trouble, one of the troubles I had when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I actually had one of the psychologists I went to, she said, you know, that's your biggest problem is you've got too many things that you can do. And there's too many things that you like to do. And you have a big choice. I said, yeah, I know. That's, that is a big problem. I can't decide. But I finally did. I said, well, I'll just stay here because this is what I like the best. And I had enough to do. So I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad that you asked me to talk, Jean. And um, I can say that this is a wonderful place. Um, to the newcomers, keep coming back. Get involved in your local Al-Anon groups. There is nothing like this program. This is the greatest living program in the world. It's what a lot of the religions preach but don't practice. And because nobody takes anybody's inventory in here except our own. At least we're not supposed to. It happens, but I have a 10% rule. 10% of any group is bad. Just accept it and go on from there. Um, You know? There's bad doctors, bad dentists, bad teachers, bad, you know, whatever. You name it, bad garbage men, you know? It doesn't matter. 10% of any group probably is, that's my random number is 10%. It seems low enough but big enough. And it's true. There's always going to be bad or uh, unethical people no matter where you go. But that's okay. You'll get through it. They aren't going to do anything. There's nothing that can happen to me that won't be solved by my turning my life over into the care and will of a higher power. I can't do that every single day, but that's where the fourth step comes in and the tenth step is I have to keep going back and saying, okay, where am I and why am I here? And I encourage you all to come back and thank you very much and have an enjoyable rest of the conference.